Welcome back to The Docket, the audio arm of bestevidence.fyi. I'm your co-host, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with Eve Beatty. Hello, Eve. Hello. So uh, usually I would say that you should tell me no lies, but that is what we are talking about today. Fabulism in true crime. Fabulism is true crime in a question mark. Um, all the ways that uh, suspect or unreliable narrators, let's say, of true crime, like the whole spectrum of those, um, plagiarism versus just making shit up versus fictionalizing something but not really versus, in the case of Truman Capote, the godfather of this genre, just not taking notes and swearing that you practiced with a phone book memorizing things and then writing them down later like cool except just bring a notebook and a pencil so everybody feels better about it because your eidetic memory is not something that we're gonna just take your word Ugh. i mean the joe mcginnis ted kennedy book i thought it was extremely entertaining i'm super sad that he made all that shit up um so what is your feeling about fabulism in true crime? And I guess we should probably define our terms. Like what uh, ethical reportage problems do you think are the most serious ones that would threaten a true crime story or narrative? Well, so we have sort of two different issues, right? We have fabulism, which is making up sources details, you know, quotes is in perhaps like Capote's case and plagiarism, which is, uh, you know, what it seems like a lot of times we're grappling with when we're talking about folks like Ashley Flowers and, um, you know, you put in the doc uh, this uh, tweet from, um, what is this person's real name? They have a I'm funny Twitter name. Sure. They're, it's, they're a writer who has contributed to Texas Monthly, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, a lot of other things. And um, Texas Weekly, Fort Worth Weekly. Okay. It, this person's name is Johnny Auping, A-U-P-I-N-G, who right. um, it tweeted the other day about a podcast that basically, he says... Basically, it's just reading aloud a story I spent three years reporting. And this was like the criticism that was levied against um, uh, Ashley Flowers, too, that you're right. using our difficult reporting and you're not crediting us. So there's plagiarism, which is, you know, unethical and shitty, but also has a grand tradition in media. And mm -hmm. fabulism, which is untruthful and misinformation, but also arguably has a grand tradition in media. So it's not like either of these are new phenomenon, but they both feel more pervasive, especially when we're talking about, um, you know, how much more easily information is disseminated these days. Yeah, I feel like um, you can't, I mean, obviously you can't just make things up. And I think it's one of the um, reasons that media finds itself in this embattlement spiral or reporting does specifically, that often there isn't the safety net of an editor or a um, copy desk or like, never mind a desk. You're lucky to get one person or um, 
a an ombudsman, for instance, that is going to make sure that if something smells like one of those tweets where you're driving the carpool and your six-year-old has this like koan of insight about everybody just getting along, that you're like, that did not happen. Mm-hmm. Send me a TikTok of this happening. I don't believe you. Okay, like we don't have that. We don't have those supports for making sure that um, reporters under pressure or for whatever reasons are not resorting to making things up. So that's a big problem. And I think in those stories, especially given how often a true crime um, researcher or reporter will become a part of his own story, this also happened to McGinnis with the Jeffrey McDonald case, that, you, you know, that can't be... Like, the system cannot allow that to happen. But in terms of, like, podcasts just, like, reading people's shit and, like, making a couple of tweaks and then it's a write-around, like, on the one hand, this is nothing that I didn't do for Yahoo in a different genre for, like, a year and a half. Got paid pretty well to do it, too. But I rewrote the stuff so that it wasn't just a lift. Unfortunately... This is a big part of the media ecosystem is write arounds that are not acknowledged. So when it comes to true crime, I feel like you have to do better than that, especially once you are as big as Ashley Flowers. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think, of course, because, you know, my entire journalism career uh, has been in the online era. Like I started um, as a blogger in 2004 is like part of the Gothamist network and attribution when you're a blogger attribute like you know whatever people can be like or I guess maybe people were back then like you know shitty about bloggers like oh they're just taking other people's stuff but hey guess what that is what uh wire services have been doing since long before we were born and mm-hmm. um the and newspapers ran that stuff the difference is that blogs let people know that uh they were using this other stuff, doing rewrite on it, linking to it, Mm -hmm. attributing it. And so I guess the thing that I have been hung up on in low these 19 years in my career is attribution isn't that hard. You can do it. And the only people who actually notice it are other people in your industry. Like if I'm reading something and it says like, well, according to blah, 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 like I'll look at this and I'll realize, hey, this whole piece is actually aggregation. Readers in general, with the exception, of course, of best evidence readers who like pay attention to everything. Um, <laughs> the readers in general, people who are just, or listeners in general, aren't paying attention. They don't care. They just want the information or the story. And in many cases, you know, like saying, and this, you know, was first reported by the New York Times or whatever, makes things seem more valid, not less. Like assuming that your listener, your listening base is one that believes in mainstream media. Like, listen, if you're the Jordan Peterson podcast, all bets are off, but, or Joe Rogan or whatever, you know, but, and arguably yeah, there's some overlap between Ashley Flowers audience Rogan. and those guys, yeah. but um, their attribution doesn't hurt you. So there's no reason not to do it besides insecurity and like some desire to like pull shenanigans and that's why i think it's gross yeah i mean i think it's insecurity i think it's um not understanding how your own brand works i mean uh you know 
true confession, I have never listened to a second of Ashley Flowers, but I, you know, like this, this has a huge audience, whatever it is she does. But my impression is that she has a co-host and they have, they converse about Mm -hmm. cases like you and I do about properties about cases but it would be so easy especially since the audience is accustomed to a certain set of voices and a certain take on things to just be like here's what I read in this piece quote and then read for a while and then say end quote and then say that there will be a link in the show notes like this is you're exactly right like it's so easy to do and it costs you nothing whereas the potential cost not just to you of not doing it and getting pantsed not doing it mm-hmm. but also of the genre and your listeners slash readers like there's a lot of bad information that you can't that just like s- s- like centrifuges itself and you can never get to a an original source that's like three quarters of the internet at this point yeah. like it, it's a it's a net negative for the world for hosts and or bloggers or whatever to to do that shit and not attribute and give credit for work. It costs nothing yeah, to do it. And it costs a lot not to do it as to whether it's criminal. I mean, I don't think it's really criminal, but I do think that if um, someone was making up stories and they had a measurable effect and then there was a class action... I would be interested to see where that went. I'm not sure what form that would take, but I think that there are certain there have certainly been civil cases alleging plagiarism, you know, against sort of you know media outlets. Of course, you can have a civil case about anything, you know. We can all see each other tomorrow, but I, I mean, I don't think that those cases have been extraordinarily successful because right. it's you know you. This is like a good example of it's really hard to like sort of say, well, I have a copyright on information. Right. And and so like, is it criminal? No, but it's the same sort of thing. Like it occupies that sort of misconduct gray mm-hmm. area that I yeah. think is still true crime adjacent enough that it is worth talking about as in it's a scandal, you know? Well, I guess the um, I guess the closest we would have to a real world example of this is the uh, Calif- Caliphate podcast, yes. right? Which um, won a bunch of awards, which it then returned, uh, and then there was the usual. Whenever this happens at the Times, this you know now we will also be the story. Independent investigation and public self-flagellation after which nothing changes because they don't have to because they're the times. But I wonder if, if that, um, if that story, um, had been like completely fabricated and if it had led to a sort of measurable negative outcome for either a subject or someone, you know, implicated by the material, whether it would be possible to sue for like, I don't know, something beyond defamation. Well, I have your, I mean, well, 
I guess I don't know if that's making sense. I'm just sort of like how again proving a negative. We're talking about that again. Well, I think that you know Caliphate is an interesting case because the thing that I'm still sort of stumped on is how much the journalist responsible for it was aware that she was presenting falsehoods from her source. Right. And, like, there's a lot of, you know, I'm sure that if I had access to that internal New York Times discussion, I'd have, you know, a better idea of it. And there's certainly, like, a lot of speculation out there. I think an example that might be a little more useful is um, A Rape on Campus, the Rolling Stones story uh, by Sabrina Erdley. Um, I was so floored when I Googled it just now to discover that it was from 2014, Sarah. My God, it's been... Almost a decade. That's Does, crazy. Isn't that crazy? Doesn't it really feel like it's more recent than that? I yeah, feel insane It feels insane like it right happened now. like right at the end of the before time. So, yes. I completely agree. Although even that is three years ago. Yikes. Oh my God. But so like, I think that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know Sabrina Erdley. I mean, I know people who know her or know people who knew her. I, I haven't seen anything from her in a very long time, I think it's there's an argument to be made that the story was a career disruptor uh, <laughs> for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but my understanding and what I choose to believe is that she pursued the story believing that it was accurate based on her source and um, that it was not. Now, where things break down, right, with the rape on campus, which was about um, an alleged gang rape at the University of Virginia. Um, Where it breaks down is that uh, it does not seem like the folks at Rolling Stone went far enough to verify what they could of these claims, because it seems like if they had, like, I'll give you an example. Like, I I filed a story at um, another publication uh, not that long ago, and a line editor went through, this is like not a huge story. This is like a story about like, you know, a TV show. And just since um, the TV show hasn't aired yet, I'm not going to name anything. Um, But a line editor went through everything and sort of asked like, you know, so this statement, was this a statement that was made in the show? Was this a statement that was made where, you know, do you have a link to support it? Blah, 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 blah. And like legal went through and said, okay, well, here's where we need to specify this and all that. And this is like, you know, a publication that's owned by a large company in the same way that Rolling Stone was. You don't necessarily have that sort of leeway if you're, uh, you know, a really small local newspaper, but here's the thing. There basically aren't any small local newspapers anymore. You're always writing for a big company anymore. So there always is a legal right. out. So, I mean, it's always been interesting to me that a rape on campus did not seem to be vetted given how, you know, how, how hot a story this was. The way that so much stuff that is way less, you know, sort of loaded is vetted. Um, but the whole story was false. The whole thing had to be redacted. It was, it was nuts. Yeah. And Rolling Stone had to pay the, um, the fraternity that was named in the story $1.65 million. And Rolling Stone did not have that money at the time. And I think that that's one of the reasons it ended up getting sold again. Mm, yeah, probably. Um, but their coverage of true crime stories has been 
you know, they didn't back off from that. It's like there's at least one story in every issue. Um, Sometimes that's because old rock and roll dudes are litigious. And sometimes that's because um, hip hop as a genre is excessively policed. And I'll leave it at that. But um, sometimes it's just because these stories are crazy and they can pay for good reporting on it. Yeah. But every now and then, like if it, um, if an image is like a little too neat, that I do think back to that. That I'm like, did you know, did this really happen, or is this just color that the reporter knows you can't verify? So he just left it in. Like, I don't know. I mean, hey, do you want to hear my sort of my um, my longtime editor sort of uh, spidey sense? I'm going to ask more questions about this whole thing is when I am editing a story where there is an unnamed source who provides the kicker quote. Mm -hmm. So the kicker quote is like sort of that when your story ends on that last quote, that really leaves you like, Ooh, I really need to think about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And if that came from somebody who is not named and who is not around to sort of say, oh, I didn't say that, or I did say that. Um, It makes me look back at the whole story, send it back to the freelancer and ask a lot more questions. And when I see those stories with that sort of perfect kicker quote from the unnamed source at the end of it, I, um, huge grain of salt with the rest of the story, always. Yeah. And it's also interesting as a freelancer or like reporter interviewer, like wherever you are on the food chain sometimes that if you're working on a piece that would not seem to merit this level of scrutiny, say for a women's glossy um, dating at the holidays, like seven pitfalls and how to avoid them, which someone on this uh, podcast may or may not have written (laughs) 10 years ago. But uh, fact check was like in my transverse colon with my sources. They were calling my sources. I was required to FedEx physical tapes to my editor. Like, eh. but that's how you can tell that someone in the food chain above you has gotten burnt to a cinder by some shit like this. Because it's like, it only has to happen once before you're absolutely chasing down that it's like, this is a comparison of three different store brand dog foods. Can we dial down a notch? Like, no. So, whoa, okay. Here's my tapes. Interviewing my friend who's a vet tech. Is this happening? And then they call her and I'm like, wow, okay. So I would rather see that happen. I would rather have people just like gloriously, floridly overreacting then look at a kicker quote like that and be like, oh, yeah, sounds like ChatGPT wrote it. Well, no notes. Lock it. So. Well, here's the thing. I don't think that Nick Denton thought that running um, a story on, you know, with video of Hulk Hogan, like, fucking his uh, buddy's uh, girlfriend was going to destroy his whole empire, but it did. And I feel like that sort of took what I do think that there was this sort of, not in every publication, but... Uh, when, you know, we were going through some of those layoffs in, um, you know, t- 2008, 2009, I think that mm-hmm. copy line eds, I think fact check got hit really hard by layoffs. Now, I don't think that would have changed the fate of Gawker, but I do think that following the lawsuit and Gawker's demise, 
people realized they needed to staff back up on that and that they needed to uh, start looking at this stuff again because it emboldened lots of people, like boyfriends who might have committed those pitfalls, um, to uh, become more litigious. And it makes more sense to, you know, hire a fact checker that you pay an entry-level salary um, of, you know, 50, 60K. I'm not saying that that's an okay amount of money. Writers continue to strike. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it makes more sense to do that than to lose your entire publication. Well, yeah, it really does. And I think there's been a, um, there's been a tipping point in terms of not just who, uh, like, how willing people are to sue for defamation and libel mm-hmm. and so on, but also, like, the um, sort of political or sociological broader currents that are that are driving that that it's like if it's just some like alt-right billionaire who wants progressive online media to stop talking shit about him like that's that's enough that's enough to just cast a whole um social media network into a shadow where nothing can grow because there's no light so yeah yeah, um, which is why we have each other proofread our shit, because yep. you just never know. And there's whole, you know, 10-minute chunks of this podcast that uh, you might not ever hear because we're not <laughs> just not trying to get um, sued into the ground and out the other side in the Pacific Ocean. I am about to read Jason Blair's memoir. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be able to get all the way through it. I have not heard good things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a, a New Yorker article somewhere that could, like did a cross comparison of uh, James Fry, Jason Blair, and Ruth Shalit's um, non-apologias after Whoa. they got can- each got canceled mm-hmm. um, and was not terribly complimentary of any of them. Mm-hmm. Um I think Ruth Shallot is still making shit up. I feel was like I read that on her Wikipedia page and was like, oh, honey, why are you doing this? But Was that the person who uh, published under a, a different last name not that long ago and it was the thing about the parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm actually yeah. going to, so that we don't get sued, look this up while we're talking. <laughs> Ruth Shallot Barrett. Yes. He's an American freelance writer. Oh, yes. Well, do, do, do. Okay. She's the sister of Wendy. Blah, 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 blah. Plagiarism and inaccuracies, plural. Okay. The first one was mid 90s New Republic. 2020, right. it was The Atlantic, The Mad Mad World of Niche Sports Among Ivy League Obsessed Parents. And I feel like it is very likely. In 2020, yeah, that I wrote about this somewhat for best evidence at the time. I relating think to you did because right, I also re- was watching Stephen Gla- or Broken Glass or Shattered yeah. Glass. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a vague memory of this, not, it, which is why it makes it all the more embarrassing that I can remember who she was. Sorry, guys, I have senility. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember writing about it for best evidence just because, like, I do think that this is a sort of scandal adjacent thing, and it like approaches sort of cons just enough that it's yeah. within sort of, you know, that I can engage my interest in that. I'm glad that you brought up Stephen Gloss. And I mean, Michael Finkel for me is 
And it's funny because Michael Finkel is actually, um, I reviewed a book of his um, best evidence just a couple of weeks ago and um, called The Art Thief. It's a great book. It's, mm-hmm. I really think it's terrific. And the thing is, I really thought um, his book, True Story, which is a couple of years old, well, more than a couple of years old. It's oh, yeah. Just, it's like 20 it's, years old now, how, I think. But Oh, Jesus Christ. This is another example of something where I feel incredibly old. Is it really 20 years old? Now I got to look. I, I feel like it came out in 2001, so... In any case, I've also read it. Murder Memoir Mea Culpa is an outstanding piece of work. It is a terrific book. And the thing is, it's like, I am not, this is a book about a family annihilator who used Michael Finkel's name uh, when he went on the lam. And this all happened shortly after Michael Finkel lost his job and was disgraced because uh, he committed journalistic fabulism. And Michael Finkel is arguably one of the few people who was able to sort of turn the fabulism straw into gold. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, True Story was adapted into a film, which I did not enjoy. Um, Who was in that? Jonah Hill, James Franco, and Felicity Jones. I actually saw it at a screening with our friend Rain, who was a film reviewer, and it was not good. Um, But... uh, Yes. I will also Finkel. correct myself. The uh, events in question occurred in 2001, but Murder Memoir Mea Culpa came out in 2005, looks like. Okay, well, then that's, so, all, that's all the difference in the world. It's still, not 20 years ago. It's, it's old enough to vote. That's not, yeah, it's not, that's not cute. Say. Yeah, yeah, you can be drafted if you mm-hmm. in this case. It's not cute. But, um, and True Story came out in 2015, and I did not like it. Very much, and not just because James Franco, alleged committer of misconduct, is in it. Um, he is, however, playing Christian Longo, who is a family annihilator. So, hey, you know, that's something. But I think that True Story is a really great example of someone who is coming to terms with the fact that they fucked themselves and mm-hmm. sabotaged themselves. And as I recall... It's been a long time since I read this book. It was not as excuse-heavy and, um, uh, what do I want to say, Sarah? Like Performatively regretful? Well, I'm sort of, like, the thing, too, where it's like, I did something bad, but I'm going to explain how it's actually your fault, Um, Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. No, I don't recall that either. What I recall is that he was like, I got in over my head. I failed to ask for help. The decision I made was absolutely the worst one. Now I have the story of a lifetime and nobody's going to fucking believe me. And then I think there were some at first, like there was this conceit of like a ton of footnotes on every page and his editor being like, "Uh uh-huh, checks out. But then he stopped doing that. Maybe I'm thinking of something something else or some David Foster Wallace essay that was about plagiarism that he's like, it just is like 200 footnotes. Anyway, um, it's, you know, I thought this was the best outcome for a case like this, especially since he does acknowledge, like, especially when you're writing for certain publications, you're representing a public trust. Yeah. Um, like deserved or not, that's the perception. So. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it is such a good book, and it is one of the only, like, 
it is so hard to come back from something like that for all the reasons that, you know, you just laid out so well. And I do think it is possible. I do think it is possible, especially when you're someone who people like and people want to work with. And this is something that I think you don't really realize until you've been on both sides of, you know, the freelance and editor equation the way you and I have. That right. uh, you that it is so... I don't know, maybe it's the same way that we're like, well, this actor's not that good, but we see him all the time, so people must like him. Um, but so much of a career can be built around operating in like an air of sort of mutual respect and being mm -hmm. easy to work with without being like a doormat or putting up with misconduct or abuse, obviously. I'm being kicked right. by a dog. <laughs> being kicked by a sleeping dog. Um, but in Hostile workplace. I know, I know. This dog is is abusing me. Um, but there is so much to be said around all that. But when you, when you, um, transgress the way that these fabulists do, it is harder to come back in many ways than it is from like allegations of misconduct. Um, on best evidence a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about a story that where one of the reporters was Glenn Thrush. Um, he's at the New York times. He was previously at Politico where according to, Several women with whom he worked at the time, he engaged in um, in non-consensual groping, attempting to kiss people, um, you know, behavior that uh, crossed, I think, most conduct lines at most publications. Um, sure. And he remains at the New York Times after, a, you know, a month-long suspension in 2017. And I just sort of mentioned it on the side because it's something that I remember. It's something that's in my head. He did come back from that for whatever reason, but... It's easier to come back, I think, from allegations like that of misconduct and abuse than it is from um, fabulism or plagiarism. Yeah, I mean, and I, I had a similar thought when I was writing up this uh, Jeffrey Tubin piece for Airmail that was about um, the exile of Linda Fairstein. That was just like, you know is this subtitled the way it is? And is it quite as sort of, um, there was just this top note of like curdled empathy there that I was like, I mean, she did this to herself, whoever this is. And then I scrolled back up and I was like, Oh, tubes. oh tubes. that's not a good look. But also like, I think that part of why Tubin's, um, cancellation was like so spectacularly abrupt and total is that I mean it's you know visible cock on a zoom call but also him and that I remember thinking at the time like first of all him but also like well shit because he's a really good analyst um in a sector that there's not a lot of good analysts. Like he worked at the New Yorker for a reason. And so seeing his byline was like, Oh good, you're back. But also don't like, don't set up from this angle about her. Mm -hmm. And she is another one. Ruth Shallot is suing. Like there hasn't been an update per the Wikipedia page, grain of salt, but she early last year sued the Atlantic for retracting the piece and she sued the editor personally. <sighs> Linda Fairstein like sued um, when they see us and Felicity Huffman. I was like, Huffman's got enough problems. Just let that one go. But it's like, just take your fucking punishment. 
You did the shit that was wrong. Just go away and let people think about something else for a second and then find a pseudonym and write another book. I don't like, ugh, I don't know. Well, it's, it's it, there's a Streisand effect um, to it all, <laughs> I think, you know, and but I also think that sometimes you get so much into it that um, you can't see a way out besides, uh, you know, first vanquishing those who most recently in your mind harmed you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that not everybody who we know in our extremely online lives Mm -hmm. is as extremely online as we are and understands that you need to not read the comments and not respond and let somebody else be the main character in a day or two. And then you can just go back to your life. So can you imagine Truman Capote um, being alive uh, in the age of Twitter? Oh my God. No. I mean, it's not good. Any scenario I imagine like, Oh, it's going to be pithy one liners, but it's not good. He would, fucking meltdown he'd be one of those people who's like where you look and it's just like 50 tweets today he would never get anything done um it's it's all for the best he was a perfect product of his time and maybe just then yeah god well yeah and um you know the estate of marlon brando might disagree but i think (laughs) that he did have a way at getting at truths of situations even if he was getting like dialogue he wasn't remembering it correctly there are kbi agents who are in in cold blood and in the oral history who are like um his rendition of what i was doing and how i was investigating is unrecognizable to me but cool glad he won a pulitzer or whatever so yeah um which he didn't did he i don't think he ever did it did not earn capote a pulitzer prize in 1966 much to the surprise of the literati and do his own mm. personal chagrin. I am reading aloud from mylessdungan.com when I say that. So Okay. Um, so I'm <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. But it looks well like done. there's a little bit of a Mandela effect about uh, Capote winning the Pulitzer um, based on just like what I see here when I Google this. Like I do think that many people assume that he did for in that in cold blood did so i mean it's not full on mandela effect but it it mm. it's mandela adjacent go back I to t- like i have a i think it was also it was nominated for a bunch of things that everybody assumed it would win and it yeah didn't that could be yeah next time we're doing an ama Parts of Reddit might be dark, but we are open all night and we would love to answer your questions about anything from are you looking forward to X property to how come you've never reviewed Y to what do you think of Z? To why do you hate Tom Holland? (laughs) We don't hate Tom Holland and I hope he's very well. Yes. I'm happy for him and his sobriety. He's a better man than I in that regard. Um, Here's how you can ask us questions or um just object to our reviews 919-75-CRIME that's call or text you can email us at editorial at bestevidence.fyi or you can drop down into the comments we can't wait for your questions and comments talk to you next time